today is taken from Luke chapter 7 verse 1 to 50 and my friend will be helping me to show you the slides and so our title is about discipleship calls for great faith discipleship calls for great faith it was in the beautiful Thursday morning at summer on July 25th at First Baptist Church where I was asked to help in the summer camp and I was teaching the children the Bible challenge. And so I woke up in the morning, I was excited, I went to church, then my dentist called me and needed to go for an appointment. So I took off my husband, picked me up, dropped me. When I came back, it was just ready for a group photo. And then when I came into the room, the leader said, oh Helen, you need to go and change because we had beautiful t-shirts. And then I ran upstairs, changed, and then I was going downstairs. I just missed a step. One step to the last stairs. I think you'll see my beautiful photo in the next slide. And then I told people I've injured my foot, but nobody listened to me because everybody was excited about the group photo. So as a strong African woman, I went and stood up for the photo. And then after the photo was taken, I told them, I am in pain. And, and then I sat down. My foot started to swell. And everybody was running. And they were giving me oil. Somebody went and grabbed ice. And they put on me. And I'm like, I am in pain. And so the church organized for one of the pastors to come. And then he was able to drive me to St. Paul's Hospital. It's just next to First Baptist Church. And then I could not walk. Life changed very suddenly. And they had to bring a wheelchair, and I had to sit in a wheelchair, and I was wheeled in the hospital. And I'm like, wow, God, what's this? And so I went in, and to cut the long story short, the doctor was like, what happened? And I'm like, I missed a step in the stairs. And then I told them, you know what? I didn't fall down. That's God. I think he took hold of me, because if I fell down, it would have been worse. They had to do some x-rays, and then the doctor said, I think you sprained your ankle. And then I was given some crutches. I went home. My husband came in when I called him, and he was very shocked because he had just dropped me like two minutes ago. And then all of a sudden, I'm texting him and saying, please come to St. Paul's Hospital. That's where I am. He was shocked. He could not say anything. And I'm like, yeah, that's life. My story was the long recovery story. Six weeks, I went for an x-ray. The bones were fully healed, but then I could not walk. The doctor said, can you give me your hand? And I'm like, no. If it's the Lord saying that, I think I would do. But for you, no. He's like, why? I said, I am a strong girl. I've given birth to two kids. If I say I can't walk, I can't walk. It's because my foot was swollen. I was feeling needles and pins. And so the doctor said, okay, I think you need to go for physio. And so I went for physio. And on the eighth week, the doctor said, Helen, I think let's try some walking. These people, they had already forgotten one thing. My foot was very fractured. So they'd missed one of the x-rays. That's why I was in great pain and it took long. And then we walked first step without my crutch. I cried because I was overwhelmed, you know, walking again. And then I went home. I woke up on a Sunday morning 
to pray at 3 a.m. And when I was going to the washroom, I felt the spirit telling me, Helen, lift your other crutch up. I lifted it up. And then I walked with my both feet. And the Lord was saying, is there anything too difficult for me? And I was like, Lord, no. And I was crying again. And I walk with my both feet on the eighth week of my healing process. To me, that's the story of God's miraculous healing and the process and the story of faith. I obeyed, and that's why I walked. Looking at our text today is an interesting text because we have four stories in the Luke chapter 7, and that's my outline. And so, the faith of the centurion servant, verses 1 to 10. Then the second story, Jesus brings to life the dead, the woman's dead son, verses 11 to 17. Then the third story, Jesus and the John Baptist, verses 18 to 35. Then the fourth story is about Jesus being anointed by a sinful woman, and this is in verses 36 to 50. I look at this as the reckless love of God. I know sometimes people have the problem with the word reckless, but then to me it's just overwhelming what God is able to do. So when we go to the first story, which is um, verses um, 1 to 10, the faith of the centurion servant, Jesus always has a response for human needs. And we can see this very well in Luke chapter 7. Verses 1 to 10, this, this is a story of faith, an amazing story. Luke could not fail to include this incident because it makes a vital point in the progress of the word of God. According to the Expositor's Bible commentary, this one first makes a very big progress in the word of God coming from the original Jewish text to the Gentile world. The Jews' appreciation of the centurion is very important theme in the book of Luke, which was written partly to show the compatibility of holy Christianity in Judaism. At the same time, this compares Jesus, the Gentile faith, more than just of that of Jews. Luke serves a very present thing here today, telling us about the prominence of Gentiles in the church. Secondly, this incident is paralleled to the conversion of Cornelius when you read from Acts chapter 10 which itself is a, it marks a very historic transition from purely Jewish church to one including the Gentiles. Luke is very careful to speak well about each centurion and his religious concern. Luke is careful also to note who had faith. Beginning with Mary, this is in Luke chapter 1, verse 45, then it goes to the four men who brought the paralyzed man to Jesus, you can read this in Luke chapter 5, verses 20. And then further, Luke is emphasizing about the authority of Jesus and is stressing that his word was having power and it spreads all over. This is verse 7, and then chapter 4, verses 32 and verse 36. Verses 1 and 5, this is a very transitional verse and is suggesting that there's another mission of Jesus which he came to fulfill after the word finished. Luke basically gives the full character of the centurion servant. The elders had to come and intervene too because they were indebted to him 
for his generosity. Verse 6 and 8 looks very interesting because the centurion who had invited Jesus to come now sends another group of people to stop him from entering his home. One wonders, why did he do that? Maybe it's because he, he looked at himself and saw that he was very unworthy. Or maybe Luke wants to show us how humble he was and he felt like Jesus was not worthy to come to his home. But also the point here is very simple. The servant noted Christ's authority. He compares Jesus' relationship with that one of God. He had faith. He believed that Jesus would be able to accomplish that which he was supposed to accomplish just through his word, and that was healing. Verses 9 to 11, Jesus is not criticizing the faith of the Jews, but rather says that not even in Israel had he seen such great faith. It was expected that the Jews would be able to show faith, have great faith, because they were known to be people of faith. And the scripture says that Jews are supposed to be people of faith. But looking at Romans 3, verse 1 to 2, that's not the truth. Not all Israelites accepted the good news, Romans 10, 16. And the missing element of personal faith is also missing in some of these people. So this failure to respond to good news, which we look at Romans 10, 16, is also missing a personal element of faith. And so this was a privilege to the Jews to be able to possess faith. But also at the same time, it's not all of them who had faith. So some of them doubted. And so Luke is trying to show us this great story of the centurion servant and the way he had faith in God. And for him, Jesus did not need to come to his house. And so when you look at the scripture, I'll ask you to go later on and read for yourself. He just says, you know what, Lord, I have servants. I say to this one, come, and they come. I say to that one, go, and they go. And so just say a word and my servant will be well. And that is exactly what happened. Jesus just said a word, and these servants, by the time they went back, what happened? The servant was healed. The servant was well. What can we learn from this story? Jesus can be amazed by your faith. Jesus can be amazed by your unbelief. So the choice is yours this morning. What are you trusting God for? What are you trusting God for this morning? You can trust him. You can say, the Lord, just say the word, and your servant will be well. So it's a challenging story to us this morning. What can God say about us? Will he be amazed by our faith, or will he be amazed by our unbelief? That's the first story. The second story is Jesus raises the widow's dead son. And this is from verses 11 to 17. Now, this story reminds me about the culture back in Kenya. I am from Kenya. And in our culture back in Kenya, some tribes, when somebody is dead, you don't go near. And even when it's, it's time for burial, there are some special people who are supposed to go to the morgue. And even some of those people, they don't even touch the body. They pay for the people in the morgue to be able to clean the body and prepare it and put it in the coffin. And then the body, you go pick it up then you bring it home. But then there are some people who will be like, no, we have to see this person before we lay them to rest really want to know whether they are the real people. But then this story of Jesus, whereby he went ahead and touched the coffin, is reminding me about, especially my tribe where I come from. I come from a tribe called the Kamba people. They are like, no, this person is dead. You're not supposed to play around with him. You're not supposed even to touch the coffin. And there are special people who are the poor bearers. And there are these people who are the ones who are expected to carry the coffin, and they are the ones who carry it to the grave. 
And why do they do that? They have a special regard for the dead people. And they feel like if you mess around with them, the spirits will come back and haunt you. So you want to treat it with a lot of care. And you don't just go near there. And not everybody. And if you are an older person, the people of your age, depending on your status in the community, they are the ones who are going to be the poor bearers. So it's not just anybody. Looking at the story of Jesus raising the widow's dead son, the reference is fag. The trip to Nain would not have taken more than one day. It lay a few miles to the southeast of Jesus' hometown, Nazareth. Nain lay on the other side of the hill of Moho from Shunem, where Elijah raised the son of the Shunammite woman. Perhaps the local people recalled this. Luke notes the large crowd, and we can see Luke talking about the large crowd following Jesus in chapter 5, verse 15, and verse 29, and verse 17, and chapter 8, verses 4. Verses 12 to 13, the cottage had already gone through the town, and it was on its way to the place of burial, which was customarily outside the town, and this was on the way for the burial, and this is where the large crowd was going. The deceased was the only son of his mother. The scripture says that the mom was a widow. So the husband had passed sometimes back. And so this was the only son. Now you can imagine you are having your only son, your husband has passed on, and now the only son dies. This lady was in great pain. This lady was in great anguish. But then Luke wants, us, wants to show us the compassion of Jesus. So what did Jesus say? Jesus told this woman, Stop crying. You can imagine how Jesus felt, how, how this woman felt. Stop crying. The heart of Jesus went out to this woman. The heart of also Luke went out to this woman. We are seeing the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ in this story. Jesus' words were so deep into the human heart. Don't cry. Don't cry. But this, he could only say that because he was moved by the tears of Jesus, uh, by the tears of this woman. If you remember also the story of Lazarus when he passed on and Jesus was told, we also see his human heart coming out. He was moved when he saw the, the, the sisters just mourning and grieving. So here in this story, the same thing is happening. Jesus was moved and he said to this woman, please don't cry, don't cry. Verses 14 to 15, Jesus risked the ritual defilement by touching the coffin. This is verse 14. One can only imagine the thoughts of the poor bearers as they stopped. They must have been shaken. They must have wondered what is all this which is happening. Jesus did what he did. It seemed very impossible because he spoke to the dead person. He said, stand up. And then what happened? This young man, he woke up. He woke up. And what did Jesus did? Jesus gave this young man back to the mother. Wow. What an amazing story. You can imagine if me and you, you are there. You can imagine if it was today. I think everybody would run away. Everybody would be surprised what has happened. But Jesus did this to show that he was mighty, to show that he was God, to show that he had power over death. I can imagine the same happening today. It would be something which everybody would be like, what really happened? People will, be, people will run away. But this story is giving us an example of what Jesus did. And is this the same story which we see Luke saying that when, when the disciples of, of, uh, of John the Baptist came to Jesus, Jesus said, go and tell John that the dead have been raised. It's the same story which Jesus is referring to in this story. 
So it's really an amazing story. When you look at verses 16 to 17, once again, Luke records the response of the people, noting that they praised the Lord. The people were happy about it. The people just said what the Lord did. They praised the Lord. And this is similar, this is similar to the time of Elisha, when Elisha was able to bring back this widow's uh, dead son. The same thing happened. People praised God. And all this story went all over in the town. Did you hear what happened? Did you hear what the Jesus did? It was a way of Luke showing that the word of the Lord was able to spread all over. And everybody was talking about the miracle, the story of Jesus. What are we doing today? Are we sharing the story of Jesus with other people? Are we sharing our miracles to other people? Your Christian story, your testimony story, is an encouragement to another, to another person. You may be going through a hard situation, a dead situation. You feel like it's gone to the end. You can't do anything. Then the Lord comes through. Jesus wants to use your story to encourage somebody else. Jesus wants to use your faith to encourage somebody else. And this is the same thing which I'm looking at this, looking at this passage. So the word spread everywhere about the miracle of Jesus. It's amazing. May we be good stewards today. May we be good disciples, spreading the word of God everywhere. Don't feel like you don't want to talk about it. It doesn't matter whether the people know Christ or not. Just share. When the Lord gives you an opportunity, share about the story of, of the Lord Jesus. There's power in the word of God. The third story, Jesus and the John the Baptist. This is verses 18 to 35. This passage narrates how John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus to inquire about Jesus Christ. Verses 18 to 20. These things, the healing and presumably all the raising of the widow's son, seem to have not convinced John that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah. He seems to be very reluctant to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's why he's sending his disciples to go to Jesus and then to ask is he the one to come, or are we supposed to wait for another one? Remember, John the Baptist was the one who was preparing the way for the Lord. He went ahead, and he was preparing the way, talking about the coming of the Messiah. Now the Messiah is here, and then he's sending his disciples, and he's asking, can you go to him? Can you find out whether he's the one we are waiting for, or there's another one to come? There may be there are several reasons why John needed further confirmation, he was in prison, according to Matthew 11, verse 2. This could lead to depression, even turn to doubt. Further, he might have wondered why. If the Messiah was supposed to release prisoners, according to Isaiah 61, verse 1, and if Jesus was the one who was supposed to do that, how comes he was still in prison, and when he was in prison, he was not set free? Thus, John the Baptist was a human being, and he's trying to doubt just the way us as human beings we can doubt. And so he's wondering, is there really still Christ the Messiah? And so John himself had not witnessed the messianic miracles, such as what the others have witnessed. And he just heard about Jesus and what Jesus was doing, but he did not have an opportunity to witness it. So maybe that's the reason why he was doubting. That's why he was wondering, oh, if it's Messiah, how comes when I was in prison, he never came to release me? He is a human being, and he's doubting all these things. So the fact that John still had disciples, according to verse 18 to 20, does not mean that he was having a separate ministry from Jesus, but he was still following Jesus. And so the number continued to grow with John, just as Jesus had his own disciples. So that's why John sent his people to Jesus and said, can you go and inquire? Jesus responds in a very interesting way, and then he says, 
go and tell him the messianic work or what you have seen, what you have seen being accomplished. It was understood in those days that a true messiah would not proclaim his, himself as such. He would first do some messianic work and then other people would see what he was doing. And then from there, they would say, no, this is the Messiah. And that's why Jesus' response was an interesting one. He told John's disciples, go and tell Jesus what you have seen. The sick have been healed. The dead have been raised. Go back and tell him about these things. And the, and the, and, and the, and the disciples were very eager to just go and tell John the Baptist what they have seen happening. So the work of Jesus echo not only in Isaiah 61, but they are also quoted about in other passages in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 7, Isaiah 35, verses 5 to 6. The Bible declares that the messianic, the messianic age, those days they could not, those, those who are not able to see, they were able to see. Those who are not able to hear, they were able to, to be able to hear. Those who are blind, they were able to see again. So basically, Jesus is referring the disciples to the work of what he was doing. He didn't want to say, I am, the, I am the Messiah. No. But then he's trying to tell the disciples what you have seen with your own eyes, what you have witnessed with your own eyes, and what you have seen me do. Go and say the same to John. And they were able to go and do that. Verses 24 to 28. Now the topic changes from the role of Jesus to the role of John. Verses 24. Jesus asked a couple of gentle questions, and they are very ironic. Through thorough negative answers, he stresses the inflexibility and the work of John. Jesus uses some terms like prophet in verse 26, and he also has the role of a messenger in verse 27. From Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, if John is the messenger, obviously this is possibly implied by the significant role of Jesus and what Jesus was trying to play. Jesus puts John in a very historic perspective. John came to advance the kingdom of God, which has now become a reality, according to uh, chapter 16, verse 16. John was great, according to verse 28, and it's greater to participate in the kingdom than to announce the kingdom. We are not to conclude that John was excluded from the kingdom. According to Luke chapter 13, verse 28, it says that, all the prophets were included in the kingdom. So don't think that John was excluded because he was talking about the prophet, about the kingdom, but he was part of it. Verses 29 to 35. Now, the attention now turns to the response of the people and their leaders. When you read verse 29, we see a contrast between the people. Some of them are hostile religious leaders. And in verse 24, there's the neutral word about the crowd which is used. The tax collectors, as mentioned here, they were among the many people who are also in the, in the crowds. And you know the tax collectors always, always doubted Jesus. Always they looked for a way to say things against Jesus. And so they are here. But at the same time, they were able to acknowledge that there was God. They were able to acknowledge what God did. They were able to acknowledge the miracles they are witnessing. They are able to talk about what Jesus did at, that, at the same time. Although still these people, they had a very hard time believing Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That happens today. Some of us, we are Christians, we are disciples, we are working and we are talking about God. We are telling other people about God. We are reading our scriptures, we are praying, but as human beings, we doubt. We doubt whether Christ is really Christ. That's the human heart, doubting. It's part of it. But how can we do 
to acknowledge that. How can we do to acknowledge that Jesus is Christ? Go back to the scripture. Look at what the scripture says. What did Jesus do? What has he done in your life? What is he doing? Remember we, ran, we sang about the miracle worker. He is still working today. Christ is still working. There are so many things which Christ is doing in our lives, in the lives of other people. And we can use that as we tell other people about Christ. So Christ is still working today. He is still alive and doing very well. And so it's my prayer that all of us will be able to look back at what Jesus has done and do not doubt. I don't want to put any blame on John the Baptist. He was in his own situation at that time and he sent his disciples to just go and inquire. But for us, we have the scriptures and we can read that Christ is the Messiah. Christ was sent to us and he's done what he has done for all of us to be able to do it. We'll continue with the fourth story, which is um, Jesus anointed by the sinful woman. This is verse 36 to 50. I think in my presentation, I used a, temp a temple, yeah, there's a, te a table there, and it's an empty table. And for me, I'm looking at it and looking at who is invited at the temple? Who is, who is invited at that table? It's empty. And this story is an interesting one. I think for all of us we know, looking at Jesus, everyone, everyone is invited. Everyone. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter your Christian journey. Everyone is invited in the table. And so for me, I just look at this story as an interesting story, a love story, a story that we see the love of God, a story that we see this sinful woman just coming at this time to Jesus. Let's discover more on there. Though Jesus is criticized in chapter, in, in chapter 7, verse 34, this does not make Luke fail to show Jesus' love again for a sinner. The story contracts a sinner and a Pharisee. It is similar to another incident which happened in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 6 to 13, and in Mark chapter 14, verse 3 to 9, and in John 12, verse 1 to 8. The woman brought a perfume to Jesus while he was in a banquet, hosted by a Pharisee named Simon. There are several differences that occur in this incident immediately before Jesus' crucifixion. The host was a leper. This is according to Matthew and according to Mark. The woman pours the perfume on Jesus' head. This is noted in Mark, in Mark and also in Matthew. And this is contrary to the cost of the perfume in the other stories. And in this story, they're not talking about what this woman did. They are talking about the character of a woman. That's why the scripture says, she was a sinful woman. So nobody's looking at what she did. Nobody's looking about the cost of the perfume. They are looking at the character of a woman, a sinful woman. The differences are very different, and they, they talk about two traditions, whereby we can see some similarities at the same time. For example, Simon was a common name during those times, and others were able also to come, again, to come across the same inference. So in other words, we are able to see there are so many stories about women who did some things to Jesus, anointing Jesus and bringing perfume. But in this particular story, nobody's talking about the perfume. People are looking at the woman, the sinful woman. This woman is sinful. Let's continue reading through. Verses 36 to 38, since Jesus accepted the invitation from a Pharisee, according to verse 36, Jesus cannot be accused 
of spanning the Pharisees socially. The woman took advantage of the social customs at that time that permitted need people to visit such banquets. This is very interesting. And this woman, she came specifically to see Jesus bringing a jar or a bottle of perfume. Since Jesus was reclining at the table, according to the custom, that is verses 36, she prepared and poured the perfume on his feet, according to verse 38. This was an humble act, and we can compare this to chapter 3, verse 16. A flow of tears were able to be poured at the same time. She used her tears to wipe the feet of Jesus lovingly with her hair. And also at the same time, the scripture said she was able to also kiss the feet of Jesus. This is a very interesting story. Verses 39 to 43, this is mastery native. Luke now directs the attention to the Pharisees. He miles the matter and reaches three conclusions. If you knew what kind of a woman she was, you would not let her do it. And then three, since he does let her anoint his feet, he is not a prophet because a prophet is not supposed to do like that. Interesting. Luke is able to acknowledge such, but Jesus does not let her expand the perfume on him or does not shun her away from doing it. He shows that he does have a unique insight to the human heart, for he knows what the Pharisees are thinking. Remember, Jesus was very smart. He could tell what was going through, especially in the mind of Simon. When Jesus tells Simon his boss that he has something to say to him, Simon perhaps expecting some great word of wisdom from the Lord, who was his great guest. He replied, tell me, teacher, tell me. The point of the incident, verses 41 to 42, is clear. And Simon is made to give the conclusion that is going to condemn him. I suppose this was trying to imply that he was very reluctant. He was at peace because he had hosted Jesus. He did not expect Jesus to say anything contrary to his expectation. And so that's why he's very eager to tell Jesus, Lord, tell me. And Jesus is very interesting. So verses 44 to 50, again, the woman is the focal point of the narrative. Surprisingly, Jesus first contrasts her acts of devotion with lack of special attention on Simon's part as the host. That is according to verses 44 to 46. The main point is reached. Jesus can declare that our sins are forgiven. And he does not hesitate to say that. And it doesn't matter how many they were. He just said, your sins are forgiven. The woman had been forgiven. This is according to verses 47. And he can affirm this in verses 48. Because of our act of love, this shows that the realization of forgiveness. Our love is not on the basis of forgiveness, but on our faith. This is according to verse 50. As in the event in itself, forgiveness was earned, and it is a fact that it was because of his love. Jesus pronounces the woman is forgiven. Then he becomes the object of another discussion because he presumes to absolutely just say that your sins are forgiven. According to them, Jesus was not supposed to do that. He's forgiving the woman's sin. They are just surprised. And this is according to verses 49. Now you can compare this with chapter 5, verses 21. The woman receives the pronouncement of salvation 
which one which we see is a perfect tense expressing an accomplishment fact your sins are forgiven something was already done it was done in the past and jesus says something very important and i look at this as a benediction go in peace jesus tells, tells this woman go in peace tradition and common words that are used they just show a meaning that somebody has been saved by faith and we can read this from chapter 8 verse 48 and chapter 17 verse 19 and chapter 18 verse 42 i'm not going to give you the other many scriptures when i look at this story of this woman and what she did i'm reminded again by our story back in the village when there's a wedding in the village the children are never invited to the wedding but they invite themselves they get crushed they'll just come and they just, especially during the, the reception, because they know there's food. And so you see so many children coming, and nobody will chase them away, because it will not be good to chase them away. And so these children will come. And look at this woman. She, she saw an opportunity, and she seized it. And because it was required for them, you can just go to banquet and just look from far. That's what she was doing. And she noticed Jesus, and she came. And because of her faith, she came to Jesus, and she was forgiven. What are we learning from this story? I'm now doing my application and conclusion. Where do you see yourself in the three stories? Jesus is teaching his disciples about the examples of great faith. What is faith? Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith is confidence, persuasion in something that God has said. Pure faith, little faith, or no faith at all, How is your Christian work as a disciple of Jesus? Have you trusted God or are you trusting God for something? And what are you trusting God for? What do you want the Lord to do for you? The Lord can just say a word. He doesn't need to come, although we know his presence is here with us, but he can just say a word. Jesus is able to do exactly, abundantly than what you can think or even imagine. The impossible, God is able to do it. He was able to bring this boy back to life. God is able, even this afternoon, to be able to bring that which is dead in your life back to life. What are you trusting God for? Is it forgiveness? What do you need mercy for? Is it a job? Is it a life partner? Is it the gift of the home? What are you trusting God this afternoon? The Lord is able. Is it healing? What are you trusting God for? The Lord only requires your faith. He is waiting. Just look around and you'll find him. The cause of discipleship calls for great faith. God bless you. Don't be afraid of tomorrow because the Lord is already there.